Good evening, everyone. Welcome to Theology Live. Okay, Suzanne and Dina get the Super Punctuality Award. I'm going to go ahead and assume that you are the two that also liked the video so far. Kevin logged on early and liked it for himself because he's back. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, we had to bring Kevin back. <laughs> and to be clear, I do mean had to. Kevin, show the people your lovely... Uh, he's back. No, it's for real, man. He's back. Show him your lovely right. face. There he is. I'm here for the moment. <laughs> well, you know, we fired him, brought Stan in. Didn't train anyone else in time. No, Stan underperformed, didn't get enough so likes. Kevin was looking for work. And we said we're, we're a Christian ministry. <laughs> So we'll How give, many likes did he get? We'll give him, man. Less than you. <laughs> Less than you. <laughs> that's all you need to know. It was, yeah, it was, a, it was a poor showing. Jennifer Foster, all the way from the great state of Tennessee. Hello. Good to hear from you. Hello, everybody. Good to see you guys. Now, um, the people should know, Kevin made, so Kevin makes a hot sauce in general. That's Kevin, what's your hot sauce called? Tailpipe. No. <laughs> it's called tailpipe infer what you will from a spicy sauce called that. It's just typically like ground up habanero, garlic, oil. It's very spicy. Super spicy, super delicious. You made a special batch of it, which we should have, if we had thought, we would have brought it in here and maybe sampled some live, maybe next week. Yeah, we could do that next time. It's, it's, it's really good, really spicy. And you made a special batch with new peppers this time. Yeah, well, that's thanks to Stan. Stan got us the good old ghost pepper. Stan? Who who will not he ain't here anymore? He ain't here anymore. So R.I.P. But we but he he got some ghost peppers. So we have a special extra spicy version. And you know, if our boy, the obsessive gardener, were on, yeah, he could jump in and talk smack about how that's actually not that spicy of a pepper. Yeah, it's still it's 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 no joke. Kevin makes really. Kevin's a good cook in general. He a is. lot of people don't know that about him. He he makes good food. He makes really good food. Good cook. Good saucier. Which is what you call maybe, people who maybe make sauces. That's maybe, you know, like a career transition for you since things aren't working out <laughs> around here. Yeah. So here's the deal. If you guys want Kevin to have to open a restaurant against his will, don't like this video at least 20 times. No, we need the like. So <laughs> keep, keep liking the videos. Kevin's going to open up Kevin's kitchen. Can we say, let's make this deal on behalf of Kevin. Kevin will eat a big old spoonful of tailpipe on the air next week. If you get, how many likes do you need for to do that, Kevin? Kevin will do it for uh, free. 15. I want a lot of likes. 15 likes and Kevin. That's not enough. That's no, what you, that's how I have to keep my job. Yeah, that's no, true. Fifth watch. 15 likes make Kevin a spoonful of the hot sauce. 20 will get him fired. <laughs> <laughs> Wait. No. And it's the more, 20 doesn't preclude the 15, so both occur. Oh, I see. So he has to wait, but if he gets twenty, he gets That's, fired, or if he he after subsequent to eating the the hot sauce, he yeah, gets fired. I'm fired immediately after. It's my yeah. last oh, act. You still have to do both. Okay, we need to get started. This is this is already off the rails. Three minutes in, so we are doing a series on the Gospels. Suzanne says twenty five, which isn't a number we said, but <laughs> and it gets me fired. She's hopeful. Thanks, Suzanne. Yeah, do it, Suzanne. Make it happen. Get the people together. So this has been a series on the Gospels, and, and so far we've talked primarily about the kind of the deity of Jesus and whether the Gospels portray Jesus as claiming that about himself. Highly recommend that you go back and check those episodes out if you did not see them. Um, this week we're kind of shifting into talking more about the Gospels themselves rather than strictly their portrayal of Jesus. And we're going to take a couple weeks to talk about the trustworthiness or reliability 
of the Gospels. And just to give credit where credit is due, one great book on this that I used um, as a resource and that's extremely approachable for the layperson, super short, super easy to read, really helpful, is this book. It was by Peter J. Williams. It's called Can We Trust the Gospels? So if the conversation we have tonight makes you want to dig a little deeper. How many pages is it? So we can highly recommend I'm it. guessing it's like 130 pages. 140 total. Ooh, okay. 140. Uh, it's an easy read, but probably at that page count, one of the best, if not top three, as far as just like a 100-page read on you know, the reliability of the gospel. So we, we definitely sure. highly recommend it. And, and it's, a, it's a short book, but that doesn't mean that the scholarship isn't serious. Peter Williams is a serious Bible yeah. scholar, really knows his stuff. And it's short because he's being to the point. He's not, it's not like dumbed down and simple. It's just he's quick and to the point. So highly recommend this and um, know that a lot of the arguments that we're going to make in tonight and next week have fuller versions in this book and, and similar stuff that we won't be able to touch. So the basic question that we're trying to get at here, and this is something that you may or may not have run into as a Christian, is are the Gospels historically reliable? Are they the kind of books that you would expect if they were what they claim to be, in other words? Um, so are they grounded in history or not? Do they have the characteristics that you should expect for a book that's making the claims they make? Or are they, as skeptics sometimes claim, products of a much later time period, things that aren't recording actual events, but rather are kind of like invented mythologies to propagate a religion? Because that's kind of what the what the counterclaim would be, right? Yeah, way late, people making stuff up. Um, they're doing it to, because, and this is an accusation on all religion. They're, you know, they're doing it to seek power through religion, uh, so they could make money or gain power or whatever like that. But yeah. there's all these host of ill motives that are attributed to people who would do something like this. Yeah, and even the pure motive is like, well, they believed in this religion, so they kind of reverse engineered these stories much later to explain why you should yeah. believe what Christians believed at that point. So the question is, do these look like books written by eyewitnesses who were actually there? And that's kind of different than... We're not trying to argue that like you can prove with 100% certainty that these words are true or that the Bible mm -hmm. is inerrant or should be treated as an authority. Those are theological claims. That's slightly different than what we're talking about. One of the things Peter Williams talks about in the beginning of the book that I think is helpful is he uses the word trust on purpose because he's saying the issue isn't like are the Gospels 100% like there's zero doubt, zero questions. He's saying is there enough trustworthiness for you to believe what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And the, the way that he kind of argues that, well, you've, maybe you, you use your metaphor that you've used before that's similar about driving. Yeah. So one of the, the issues that we face is that many people think when it comes to the Bible, um, I have to either not believe it or believe it's 100% the word of God and have no doubts about it and have the proof I have the proof that the Bible is 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 perfect in all of its ways. Now, um, I believe the Bible is is perfect. I be, I believe it's authoritative, but that's not the argument that we're talking about. We're talking about is it reliable? Is there enough reason and evidence to trust it? Not that you don't have doubts or anything like that. And so here's here's one of the things that modern people face. Modern people think, and or they don't think they want. Proof, 100% deniable proof. The problem is, is we rarely ever have that with anything in right. life, but we still go on our lives and we manage. So I'll give you an example. Um, you don't have any proof that when you get in your car and you drive to work that, that you won't get in a car accident, you'll die. 
you you have enough reason and evidence to believe though that for that you, once you've measured all these different factors it's safe enough for you to drive to work you trust your own driving ability you you like i'm a good enough driver we're going to get to work you trust that there's enough laws in place and enforcement of those laws that are in place that people generally drive in a safe manner. Now, obviously there's exceptions, but for the most part, people drive in a safe enough manner and the laws are enforced in, in such a way that you think with your driving ability and others on the road that you can make it from point A to point B without getting a car yeah. accident and die. But you can get in a car accident Yeah, it's die. not. It's different than 100% certainty that you won't crash. It's yes. just, do I have enough trust for it to be worth me driving to work. Yes. And you might be in a place where the scenario is different. You're, say you're in a foreign country and you don't know the rules of the road there. You might then decide, I don't have enough trust in myself to drive today. Or be a little bit more reluctant and wrestle with it before you get in, but eventually do it. Now, here's the point. We think we have proof for lots of things, but in reality, what we're doing is we're measuring with our reason and our emotions thrown in if there's enough evidence that we could trust this. Um, so every day you get in a car and trust it. And so for Christianity, um, people often want 100% proof as if like, I'm not going to believe in, in God until in the sky, it says Jesus, right. is my son, whom, whom I will please. What you need to know is that you're not looking for that. You're looking for, is it reasonable to conclude that the truth claims of Christianity correspond to reality? And similarly with our discussion today with the gospels, is there enough reason do we have evidence to say we can trust these things right now there's a whole other argument about inerrancy and word of god and authority but that's not what we're talking about we're saying do we have enough reason to trust these documents and so you're not looking for 100 proof you're looking for reliability and by the way again to emphasize the point you do that with right when you eat at a restaurant, when you sit down in a chair, yeah. all your past experience of the time sitting in a chair where a chair supported you. But like if you ever sat in a chair or something like that and maybe a leg was broken and you fall, yeah. the next time you get in it, you might be a little bit more hesitant because you have a little bit more experience to doubt that. So in life, we're always doing that constantly all yeah. of the time. You so don't it's wait. unfair to put that proof, te proof test upon something. Yeah, absolutely. So it's a really great point. And, that, and I've used that metaphor for the Christian faith in general that, hey, like, you know, you don't, ha you, we're not, you don't wait to get on an airplane until you're 100% sure that it will not crash. Mm -hmm. You just have to be sure enough. And so um, that's not, that's not us like lowering the bar to your point. The, the point is, this is what we do with everything. And so specifically with the gospels being reliable, again, the question is, do these look like what they claim to be when you really examine them? And so the kind of straw man argument against the Bible and the reliability of the Bible is represented well in this meme that Kevin can pull up for us. This is the kind of thing you see on the internet. It says, uh, oh yeah, here we go. It's a goat, which by the way, skeptic memes, pretty weak lately. I've been looking hard to find really funny ones. And this one, it's just like, it's just a, it's a goat. I don't even get the joke of it. But it says the Bible is reliable because the Bible says it is. And this is actually a pretty good representation of the kind of straw man mockery that you hear against Christianity, mm -hmm. which is like, oh, you just believe the Bible is the word of God because the Bible says it. And that's frankly not the case. And we can prove that by starting right now with sources outside the Bible. Mm -hmm. So let's jump into some quotes from non-Christian sources that corroborate some of the basic details of the Gospels. So I'm going to read some quotes, and we talked about it, and we think it's worth reading some of these at length, even though they're kind of long. 
Stick with it. Yes. Hang with me because uh, the first one's not super long. The second one's longer. But these are really, really important. These are early sources that are not only not Christian, but two of the three are hostile to Christianity. So this first one is from Tacitus. Tacitus is a uh, Roman senator and consul, so he's just a Roman politician, really prolific writer, considered to be, in the scholarly world, a very reliable historian of that time. He was uh, born in AD 56-ish, and so he's writing in the late first century. Um, So, you know, we're talking within a number of decades of the life of Jesus. And uh, here's a quote from him. And this is from a letter... Oh, actually, no, this is from a history. I'm thinking of the next one. This is from a history called Annals. And uh, stick with me, like I said, because you're going to learn a lot about Christianity in the very early days from this. And the quote that Kevin has up will pop in partway through. But neither human help nor gifts from the emperor nor all the ways of placating heaven could stifle scandal or dispel the belief that the fire had taken place by order of Nero. So quick background there. Mm -hmm. This is him specifically writing about Um, a fire that was started in Rome and everybody suspected that Nero, the emperor at the time had started it, but Nero was trying to propagate the counter rumor that Christians had actually started it. So he's saying in spite of that, nobody was buying it. Therefore to scotch the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty, a class of men loathed for their vices, whom the crowd called Christians. Christus, the founder of the name, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilatus, and the pernicious superstition was checked for a moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital, Rome itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and become fashionable. I love that. First then, the confessed members of the sect were arrested. Next on their disclosures, vast numbers were convicted, not so much on the count of arson as for hatred of the human race and derision accompanied their end. They were covered with wild beast skin and torn to death by dogs, or they were fastened on crosses and, when daylight failed, were burned to serve as lamps by night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle and gave an exhibition in his circus, mixing with the crowd in the clothes of a charioteer or mounted on his chariot. Hence, in spite of a guilt which had earned the most exemplary punishment, there arose a sentiment of pity due to the impression that they were being sacrifices not for the welfare of the state, but to the ferocity of a single man. So that translation, by the way, is awesome. Yeah. I haven't read that in, in Latin or Greek or which I, I don't even know what, it's, what annals is written in. I assume Latin. Spanish, man. Spanish, right. So Spanish. what we can infer from that is a huge amount about the very first church. The names they, they, well, some of the interesting ones, they were so hated that they're called this disease. Yeah, he calls them a disease. They're a, they're a disease. No one likes these. These, these, this, this is just gross. So there's that type of language. Um, second, some confirmation of the gospel's details of the actual crucifixion of Jesus. So you yeah. had Crestus yeah. getting used. It's Christ. Um, he was crucified. So the type of execution. Yeah. And then also under Pontius Pilate. So and giving, during the reign of Tiberius. Yes. Yeah, so so Tib- grounding it in a number of historical details. And, and details that match exactly the way the gospel tells the story. And again, this is not a person who's trying to convince people of Christianity. He, re- he refers to Christians as a disease in this yeah. very thing. And then the, the, one of the impor- important things is to, know, to note is that the Christians are, are getting slaughtered. So they're, they're getting killed and tortured for their faith. He mentioned being fastened to crosses, 
animals tearing them and then of course burning them. Um, so uh, it's horrific things that happen to the first followers of Jesus. But this is this is incredibly important. Within a few decades, you have Christians willing to die for their faith in Jesus. Now, th- this is not people willing to die for a a wise prophet right. or a good teacher. They they aren't willing to die because man, this Jesus guy taught us some really cool stuff. He taught us that uh, we should love our neighbors. They are dying because they believe this is central to their faith. So the claims of the gospels that Jesus was more than a man, he's not just a normal human being, are so central within a few decades, men and women and very young people, we'll see this in a moment, are willing to die and sometimes in horrific manners to give their life for this Jesus. And from a historical perspective, that's fascinating to see that type of spread within a few decades. Absolutely. And and the geographic spread, which also is talked about in the book of Acts, which is not a gospel itself, but it's almost certainly written by the same author as one of the gospels, kind of like a part two. The spread is described by Tacitus exactly the same way that Luke talks about it in Acts, that there's this, the under Tiberius, Jesus is killed. And then that kind of quells things for a little while, which is also the way the story is told in the Gospels. And then all of a sudden there's this explosion where he says, it's not just in in Judea anymore. Now it's all the way in Rome. I mean, I like that he says, the disease is spread to Rome where all things horrible or shameful in the world collectively yeah. become fashionable. That actually sounds a lot like um, the hive of scum and villainy that is Moss Eisley on Tatooine. That's true. That maybe that's maybe they've been maybe uh, old George Lucas was reading some Tacitus. So you have from that all of these kind of chronological, geographic corroborations. Also, um, the fact that there's a lot of Christians already, even by the late first century, enough that it's being described as a disease. Mm-hmm. Now, this next one's even longer, but this one is really, really worth paying attention to. Um, and this is, again, by somebody even more so than Tacitus, who does not like Christians. This is Pliny the Younger. We were debating earlier whether you're supposed to say Pliny, Pliny, or, Pliny. or Pliny. You can feel free to chime in in the chat um, if you Pliny. prefer Pliny or Pliny. Pliny. It'd be awesome if everybody just spelled it. to say. I like, was going to say, <laughs> how are you going to do these? <laughs> Pliny or Pliny. You know, uh, historians who are trying to be smug say Pliny, but anybody who's buying the beer calls it Pliny. 100%. I'll stick with Pliny. Let's stick with Pliny. So this is Pliny the Younger. He was a politician. He was a judge and an author. He wrote a ton of letters. Um, most famously, he wrote a series of letters to and from the Emperor Trajan, who was emperor a little bit later. He's emperor from 98 to 117 AD. So Trajan and Pliny have a series of correspondence. And um, it's because Pliny had this very prominent position uh, in the in the empire, and so and Kevin the older is going to put it up on the screen. A oh yeah, bit. Kevin the elder. <laughs> going to put it up. Kevin or older. Kevin or Kevin, and so Kevin so the older. This is from a letter that Pliny is writing to the emperor. So keep that in mind. He's writing to Emperor Trajan, and um, he's talking specifically about how he's supposed to deal with Christians. He's got a bunch of Christians in his area. He he's, don't like them. Doesn't like them, and he's not. He wants to make sure he's handling things correctly. So again, stick stick with me on this because this one is uh, this one's harsh, but you learn a lot. It is my rule, sir, to refer to you all matters of which I am unsure. For who is more capable of guiding my uncertainty or informing my ignorance? This is exactly what I say to Isaac when it's I come to advice. It's true. like, this is just standard. I come into Isaac's office and say, who is more capable of guiding my uncertainty or informing my ignorance? 
It's easy to with someone so as ignorant as you. There's a wealth of knowledge of mountains of wisdom to impart. <laughs> I like how in your insulting thing called there's like ignorant, some, there's like 10 grammatical yeah. problems. <laughs> All right. Having never been present at any trials of the Christians, I am unacquainted with the method and limits to be observed, either in examining or punishing them. I've also been in great doubt whether any difference is to be made on account of age or any distinction allowed between the youngest and the adult, whether recounting allows a pardon or whether uh, recanting, I'm sorry, allows a pardon or whether if a man has been once a Christian, it does not help him to recant, whether the mere profession of Christianity, albeit without crimes, or only the crimes associated with it are punishable. So you can see the kind of things he has. Mm -hmm. He's like, I don't know if, if, if they just recant their faith. Is that enough to let them go? Or is it if they've ever been a Christian, do we punish them anyway? Then he goes on. In the meanwhile, the method I have observed towards those who have been denounced to me as Christians is this. I interrogated them whether they were Christians. If they confessed it, I repeated the question a second and a third time, adding the threat of capital punishment. If they still persevered, I ordered them to be led off to execution. For whatever the nature of their belief might be, I could at least feel no doubt that stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy deserved punishment. There were, also, there were others also possessed with the same madness, but being citizens of Rome, I directed them to be sent there. These accusations spread, as is usually the case, from the mere fact of the matter being investigated and several forms of mischief came to light. A placard was put up without any signature, accusing a large number of persons by name. Those who denied that they were or ever had been Christians, who repeated after me an invocation to the gods and offered adoration with wine and incense to your statue, which I had ordered to be brought for this purpose together with the images of the gods, and who finally cursed Christ... All things it is said that no real Christian can be forced to do. Love that, It's a good line. Such a good line. I thought they should be discharged. So in other words, that, that's a really long sentence. So just so you don't miss that, he goes, I bring in an image of you. I bring in images of other gods. I say, curse Christ, pray to these gods, pinch incense to the emperor, which is a religious ritual. And he goes, everybody says a real Christian will never do that. Mm -hmm. So if they do that, they can be set free. Others who were named by that informer at first confessed themselves Christians, but soon after denied it, saying that they had been, but they had ceased some three years ago. Others many years ago, and a few as much as 20 years ago. Now, this is, mm. this is a, a, important enough to pause because we have so much more to cover. He goes, some Christians three, some Christians many, some as much as 20. This is a letter that is dated I have the actual date of the letter written down, but I mean, Trajan's reign only goes till 117. So say it's early 100s AD. And someone, there's this number of Christians even 20 years mm -hmm. ago. So everything you're about to read that he says he learned from these Christians are, we're talking about Christian practices in the first century AD. Pretty amazing in a pagan source like this. So all those people worshiped your statue and the images of the gods and cursed Christ. Almost done. They affirmed, however, the whole of their guilt or error was that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light, and of singing in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God, and of binding themselves by a solemn oath not to wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor to deny a pledge when they were called upon to deliver it up. After this, it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. Even this practice, however, they had abandoned after the publication of my edict, by which, according to your orders, I had forbidden political associations. I therefore thought it the more necessary to extract the real truth with the assistance of torture from two female slaves who were called deaconesses, 
but I could discover nothing more than depraved and excessive superstition. Now there's some more, but that's also worth pausing on. Yeah. A lot of stuff there. First, the early Christian practices. They meet before the sun goes up. They share a meal. They sing a hymn to Christ as a God. And they, it says they break up and they yeah. come back. Now, first off, I'm not a big fan of getting up before the sun comes no. up. Man. But <laughs> these Christians <laughs> love the Lord so much <laughs> that uh, they're, they're getting up. It, the, the idea is that before anything started in their work day or whatever it was, the first priority was to gather among other Christians to share food together and sing to Jesus and what the pagans notice is as to a God. Right, which is bizarre to them. It's just like, what's going on? Which means, again, very, very early, the first Christians are recognizing Jesus as a God. They're singing to him. Yeah. Um, you're not, again, going back to the episodes one and two of, of this series, it's not you're at Nicaea and Constantine is creating this this myth that Christ right. is the unique son of God. They, they are, by their enemies, being described as people who worship and sing to Christ as a God. And if you follow the logic of the letter, some of the people he learned this from said, oh, I was a Christian 20 years ago. And he's not going, there's no Christians here 20 years ago, man. No, that was only still in Jerusalem. He's confirming that. And so it's really, it's really, really amazing. And to the point of the series, which is, can you trust the gospels? This description of Christian worship matches perfectly to the beginning of the book of Acts. Yeah. So what did the early church do? Exactly what Pliny just described them as doing. Again, a source hostile to Christianity. And then finally, an amazing detail is he goes, I tortured two slave girls. Mm -hmm. So according to Greco-Roman society, what are they? Slaves. And what are they called in the church? Deaconesses. Yeah. So these two slave women in the first century world are have positions of authority and leadership in the church. Yes. Pretty amazing. Uh, and on multiple levels, that angle, and then the additional one that, um, again, the accusation that, you know, religion is is just corruption, people trying to collect money and do X, Y, Z. What you're seeing in the early Christian movement is the elevation of people who were from socioeconomic classes that they had no way to move up yeah. the ladder. But within the church, the one who is a slave can be in a, she could have this official role of deaconess. And then what you, what's important for us to know is our history is, is filled with men and women and young, as described here, young females uh, suffering and dying for their faith because yeah. they worship Christ as a, a God. Um, and again, this isn't on topic. It's a little side, but always remember just every time you're gathered at church, every time you're watching Theology Thursday, whatever it may be, there are countless brothers and sisters who are facing threats and loss of job, yeah. health, life, etc. Um, for for the faith, and so we're blessed where that isn't isn't necessarily the case in our in our current you know the world that we occupy. Yeah. But from the beginning, That's Christians the Christians have given up everything to serve Christ. All right, let's keep and rolling. And they notice it. Like the people are like, yeah. man, there's that one line. I don't know if you could pull it, but it's like they're, I don't, I can't even string the words together as beautiful, like stubbornly obstinate. Yeah. So awesome. I, sh I should see if I can find it. But yeah, I, dude, I love it. I love the all things it is said that no Christian can be forced to do. <laughs> so awesome. Yes. Yeah. And, and so you, and again, this is a source hostile to Christianity. He's writing to the emperor of Rome to ask, am I punishing Christians correctly? 
So just to finish what he has to say, because there's some more interesting stuff here too. I have therefore adjourned the proceedings and hastened to consult you, for the matter seemed to me well worth referring to you, especially considering the number endangered. Many persons of all ages and ranks and of both sexes are being and will be called to trial. That speaks to the number of Christians in the empire at this point. For this contagious superstition is not confined only to the cities, but has also spread through the villages and rural districts. It seems possible, however, to check and correct this. It is certain at least that the temples, which had become almost deserted, are now beginning to be visited again. And the sacred rites, after a long interlude, are again being revived. There's general demand for sacrificial animals, for which up to now only rarely were purchasers found. From this, it is easy to imagine that a multitude of people may be reclaimed from this error if a door is left open for them to change their minds. Mm -hmm. So that, again, speaks to just the massive numbers of Christians that are, that are in the kingdom at this time. Yeah, and again, to the point, are the Gospels reliable? This, this, these quotes by these hostile sources aren't like saying every last thing in these Gospel accounts is right, but what they're confirming is the claims of the go- that the gospel writers were making, namely about Jesus and who he was, was the standard accepted kind of creed, if you will, of the first Christians. This isn't a late invention. Right. Who, this, this idea that Jesus is unique and the gospels bearing witness to that is something that's universally accepted among the early Christian community. Yeah, they're willing to die. Real Christians, Pliny is saying, real Christians die for this rather than pinch incense to Caesar. And so that, and again, we're talking when he says, I've got Christians who've been Christians for 20 years. That's, this is early, early Christianity. All right, one more. Anything else on that one before we, before we jump on to the next one, Isaac? No, no, I was just looking for that string of words so I could apply it to Kevin. You want me to find it? I, I saw Kevin... Kevin trying to Google find it real quick, and I was like, I'm just going to use it against you, man. You don't want to bring it up. Yeah, no, don't give... Oh, I got it. For whatever the nature of their belief might be, I could at least feel no doubt that stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy deserved punishment. Yes. So just like I come to Isaac and say, who is more capable of guiding my uncertainty or informing my ignorance? When Isaac goes to Kevin, he says... I feel no doubt that stubbornness and inflexible obstinacy deserve punishment. And so what shall we do with the one we call Sam? Wait, hold on. That's, that's what I go to Kevin on. I don't like that at all. I don't like it when I'm participating in smack talk against mm-hmm. one friend and then I get roped into it. All right, last one. This is a short quote, but it's also worth showing. And there are others, by the way, but these are some of the biggest ones. This is a quote from Josephus. That's a name that you might hear thrown around if you're a Christian and if you're kind of in nerdy circles. He's a really, really interesting character. We probably know more about... He's, would, you, would you say he's the most important person most important historian for what happened in Israel in the first century? Probably for the, that period of the first century, second temple Judaism, probably, yeah. Super interesting guy. He was a Jewish military leader who, and writer and historian who ended up defecting and going over to Rome. Kind of knows you're about to lose. Yeah. Then he's like, let's, I'm going to join. And then he actually um, basically says, you know, I think, Yahweh of the Old Testament, he just changed sides. Yeah. So he's on Vespian's side now. And he made some really interesting theological arguments for how that actually makes sense. He's like, no, this is, this is what you should expect to have happen. And clearly Yahweh of Israel has chosen Emperor Vespian. And so he switches sides. And so his writings are interesting because they're, they're all very colored by the fact 
that he is loyal to Rome, yeah. even though he's Jewish. And he's sort of trying to make the Jewish people look good in some ways, but in a way that... He's not, yeah, he's not completely throwing his people under the bus. Yeah, he's trying to make it work is the sense you yeah. get. Some people um, would say, yeah, he's actually just a... He's trying to do right, man. Yeah. And he mentions Jesus a couple of times, mentions John the Baptist as well, which is interesting. One of the mentions of Jesus is controversial, whether it's original or not mm-hmm. to Josephus. So we won't even mention that one. This is the non-controversial quote about Jesus. And this is what he says. He's talking about the high priest, Ananias. He calls him Ananus. He says, Ananus. What? What's that? <laughs> I heard you say he calls him bananas. Bananas. Like, no, he doesn't. <laughs> Ananus. Bananas. Ananus. Bananas. <laughs> bananas, the high priest. I like that better. Yeah, bananas, bananas, the high priest. Bananas, the high priest. Now, some of you split uh, out of there OG listeners a... will know something called uh, banana bread. Banana with an M? Yeah, that's an old reference. Is that like a? Is that like the that's Israelites it. in the wilderness? They, they oh, yeah. they made banana bread. Is that Keith they, Green? That's Keith Green yes. banana bread. I'm so happy I recognize. Give us that. a like if you remember banana bread, Keith Green. If you know banana bread from Keith Green, throw us a like. Um, if you phone don't, lines are you open. asleep in the light. You asleep. You know what my favorite line in Asleep in the Light is? Keith Green's talking about Christians when he says, Jesus rose from the dead. And you, you, you can't, can't even get, get out of bed. What else do you need to hear? Keith Green. I know man. they were up before the sun rose meeting together, and I'm complaining, man. Keith Green's still convicting. He's got you. All right. So, bananas <laughs> convened. I heard you say bananas. <laughs> I said ananas. It's like. Bananas split. Ananas convened the judges of the Sanhedrin and brought before them a man named James, the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ, and certain others. He accused them of having transgressed the law and delivered them up to be stoned. Now, this is really interesting because, again, there's stuff on the surface that's really obvious, like this maps very well onto the book of Acts and the persecution that James specifically suffers. It also kind of um, gives credibility to the idea that James had prominence among the yeah. Jerusalem disciples, which the Bible says as well. But there's other details here that are really interesting. For for Josephus, as an educated Jew in the first century, to say Jesus, who was called the Christ, mm-hmm. that's not like a Roman governor saying Crestus when he has no idea what he's talking yeah. about. Josephus knows what it means for someone to be called Christ. So Jesus called the Messiah and others. Now, um, this is a bit of a bigger stretch, but I do think it's it's interesting and, and worth pointing out because this isn't directly in the text. But the fact that James, who is a brother or half-brother of Jesus, is willing to suffer for his belief. Yeah. yeah. It's the same point you made about all the Christians being willing to suffer for their belief early, but magnified because this is A, somebody who has direct relation with Jesus. He knows yeah. him. He knew him while he was alive. And if he's a brother of Jesus, he knew him for a long time. Yes. We don't know how much younger he was necessarily. He knows for a fact that this guy's like, no, this is a guy's a human. He's hustling. He's, he was hustling mama. Yeah. Always taking extra <laughs> banana bread out of the jar. Yeah. Blaming it on little James. I always got in trouble and it was always him. And that same manipulation he did at home, he just got better Tricked at everybody. as he grew up. But he's like, dude, he grew up with him. He's and, willing to suffer and, and die. now he's willing to, to die for this guy. And again, it's not like, He's a leader in the church. Well, of course, he's part of the corrupt religious system. Right. They're getting killed. Yeah. They're getting killed. Um, you could certainly make the argument that many religious leaders today are making money off the faith and are corrupt. 
And the good news is there's usually fruit. Jesus tells yeah. us, judge the fruit. You'll be able to see the fruit. It's bad fruit. Um, and when you think early church, sometimes you can get your chronology mixed up and picture like, you know, the corrupt church in the Western European world. A giant medieval. institution that's completely corrupt. It's like, no, man, these guys are willing to lay it all on the line. And it is a good argument. It's, it's the brother, man. That, this, this guy would know if something was up. Yeah, absolutely. Antiquities also, we're not quoting it here, but Antiquities, the section on John the Baptist also comports really well with what the Gospels say about John the Baptist. Um, So yeah, again, this is super interesting. We got several quotes from the secular world that are all corroborating some really important chronological, geographical details. Um, One that we can finish with just briefly because we looked at it last week, but it's worth showing again because it fits more directly into this, is that Alexamenos... um, Graffito is what they call it, which is just a fancy way to say graffiti. Graffito. Graffito. But you pulled this up. We looked at this last week, so we'll be brief. But this is a a blasphemous graffiti that was super, super early, probably sometime as early as the second century AD. And it shows, you can see the actual graffiti um, and then something that's just kind of taking the lines from it so you can see it more clearly. And it's a, a person that's a human with a donkey's head on a cross and then this human character with his hand raised up. And what it says in um, Greek is, Alexamenos worships his God. And so this is, again, hostile to Christianity. It's just making fun of some guy. And we don't know how... Alexander. Alexander, or Alexamenos, as I prefer to call him. Yeah. Pliny. Kevin and the older. Pliny, Pliny. And so it's, it's interesting because, again, th- we don't know how hostile, how scary this is necessarily at this point in history, whenever this happened, or if it's just somebody making fun of somebody. But the point is, there were enough people worshiping Jesus as God at this point, very, very early, for that to be a thing that yes. you would make fun of. So cool. That's, those are some examples, and hopefully that kind of helps you guys see that, man, you, you look at the secular sources around that same time or a little bit later, and they're corroborating a lot of the details that we see in the Gospels. And before we move on to our next set of ideas, we got a new segment here on Theology Live. Man, is it sponsored by anybody? Not yet, but hit us up. <laughs> Tweet of the week. Tweet of the week with the little <laughs> bird sound effect. Can we get that again, Kevin? Hit that thing. That's a good tweet. Did you find that, Kevin? Yes, among other things. Among other things. That's cryptic. Well, did you get us a sponsor? Tweet of the week brought to you by... By Twitter. By Fruit Roll-Ups. Fruit roll I'm trying to get some (laughs) snacks. We've said it before. Caffeine and carbonation is all it takes. And we don't even need money. I just want sunflower seeds sponsorship. Sunflower seeds would be good. All right. Pull up this tweet, Kevin. So we're going to start doing this, not necessarily every single week, but we want to have tweets because Twitter, believe it or not, if you're not in this dark corner of Twitter, you don't necessarily see it, but there is a lot of theology talk and arguing that goes on on Twitter. A lot. So sometimes what we might show 90% is... 90% bad. 90, that, and that's exactly to what I was going to say, which is that a lot of what we might show is just really so bad So the tweet theology. of the week is usually bad? It's often going to be bad. Okay. Occasionally it'll just be because it's awesome. This week it's kind of both, which is okay. interesting. There's a really bad point made by tweet somebody. Tweet of the week. And then it gets to use Twitter terms, dunked on by yeah. somebody else. Yeah, hit that bird, that little Richie Chi bird. Yeah, give one us one more. more. We it. want a high, high production around here. Man. Yeah. All right, bring up this tweet of the week. So it might be hard for you to see, so I'll read it for you. If you're not familiar with how Twitter works, the big words up top are somebody responding to the smaller words beneath. 
The original tweet was uh, just last week, and the original person tweeted, According to Genesis, Adam and Eve didn't sin because they made a conscious decision to reject God's authority. They were led to rationalize their sin by means of a theological argument based in a literalist interpretation of God's words. You can hide it for a second, Kev, before we read the response. Right off the bat, some giant problems with... <laughs> you know, giving someone a soundboard is a danger. <laughs> we got to do that one, like at least three more times tonight. So you can see what this, the point this guy's trying to make, but he's basically saying, hey, look, it actually wasn't conscious sin on the part of Adam and Eve. It was an overly literal interpretation of what God said. The problem with that, now he's trying to dunk on super... I, okay, let me not read into his motives. Yes. It seems as if he is trying to make fun of people who subscribe to a very literal interpretation of the Bible. Or at best, like, as you know, we always try to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. Right. Um, at best, it's saying, if you stick to a literalist, a literal hermeneutic, look at the type of trouble you can find yourself in. Right. Because the Bible starts off with a story about someone having a literal interpretation of something and look what happens. Right. The problem with that is if you read Genesis 3, the serpent doesn't come in and give a hyper-literalist like interpretation of what God said, which no. is if you eat from this tree, you'll surely die. He comes in and asks a leading question to cause doubt to come on Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. So pull up the tweet that's in response because it's pretty dang good. The response... <laughs> Kevin has too many privileges. The irony here is that Adam and Eve sinned because they paid insufficient attention to the literal text of God's command and were led astray by swallowing the errant assumptions embedded in the serpent's exegesis. Exegesis just... Oh my gosh. You know, some people just don't know when to stop, huh? My. So you get the idea of what he is trying to say. In response, and he would probably say that even the categories he's using don't quite apply here, mm -hmm. but he's coming back and saying the issue is not an overly literal interpretation of what God said. The issue is actually the serpent's bad interpretation of what God said and all of the assumptions yeah. embedded in that interpretation. So, so he takes the dude's own methodology and shows it to be wrong. Right. Now, to be fair, it's kind of like the point of that passage in Genesis is not your adopted hermeneutical right. approach. Yeah. It's it's not that. But if you're going to go down that route, that dude's like, okay, I'll play this game. Right. And according to your own categories, it's actually not at all about hyper-literalists. It's about the fact that, I mean, it's actually interesting in the story. We can't spend too much time on this, but Eve adds to the text of God's command, if you yeah. want to use that category. Because the Satan starts by, or the serpent in the story, starts by asking, the Nahash. Yeah, the Nahash, if you will. <laughs> and I will. Starts by saying, what did God say? And Eve adds, God just said, don't eat of it. But Eve adds that God said, don't even touch it. Yes. And then the Satan in that story takes and interprets what God said in an incorrect way. So all of that to say. Tweet hey, of the week. Don't press it. Tweet of the week. Come on, it's overdone. So it's laid out now. It's played out. Look forward to more bird noises by Kevin. This is why we uh, have him around. If you want to submit a candidate for Twitter, he reached of the week, 15. You got to eat the hot sauce. You do. I ain't fired yet. You're Wait. not fired yet. We need five more likes to have Kevin eat the spoonful of the hot sauce and be fired subsequently.
That'd be so messed up. Right now, he just <laughs> eats the hot sauce and keeps and his keeps job. his job, which he likes to do. By the way, Kevin likes to eat hot sauce. He does, but not as a pure spoonful of this. We need stuff. to make it enough that it's unpleasant for you, Kevin. We didn't ask. I'm a if little you- concern right now. <laughs> He's you working know, hard, man. We're pretty. We're not far from like the morning zoo style shows that you that you hear on the radio. You know what I, I mean? Where it's know. like. You never listen to like the morning madhouse where it's like, no. hey, we got the so-and-so. Uh, All the sound effects. It's been a long time. Kevin knows what I'm talking about. Oh, we got another like. Somebody's trying to get Kevin oh, fired. Four more likes. Four more likes, man. All right. So we've got He's one. We've only got 15 more minutes. obstinate. 18. It's coming. Can't Two more. Stop. Won't stop. Some people didn't hear the deal. I'm realizing because we have a lot more viewers Don't on. Just get the <laughs> that likes, went man. wild. Oh, no. We got 20 to, to, to get Kevin fired, 15, which we've already hit for him to have to eat a giant spoonful of hot sauce on next week's episode, which is going to happen. Oh, <laughs> it happened like that was, uh, that was the zoo right there. That was, that was the morning zoo. <laughs> I love it. Just a reminder. Hey, Kevin, I'm not here next week. Hey, Kevin, you got a. Uh, Boys to men, it's so hard to say goodbye on that little little, <laughs> that little soundtrack thing of yours. Oh man! <laughs> All right, let's keep cruising. So we got 15 more minutes, and the the other one that I wanted to cover tonight. This is kind of a weird one, admittedly, not super super easy to um, explain, but I'm convinced it's worth understanding. So again, we're talking about the reliability of the gospels here, and this is a category that's actually it's not talked about very often because it's a little bit harder to understand. Yes but it's really actually, it has a lot of power once you get it. It's called undesigned coincidences, and it refers to undesigned coincidences that occur between the four Gospels. This is a term coined by um, somebody named John James Blunt. Not the same James Blunt who's saying... Got it. James Blunt, yeah. You're beautiful. I don't know, but I hate that song. It's not a good song. Oh, man, I hate that song. I'll have to tell you the story someday of when I sold a guitar amplifier on Craigslist and the guy to test it in a crowded parking lot sang that whole song through it. To you? To me. He asked me what song I wanted to hear, and I told him, dude, whatever you want to sing. He sang the entire song through the amplifier in a Starbucks parking lot, looking at me the whole time, including the bridge, which I forgot has some pretty heavy swearing dude, in it. Dude, that, like, that, that, <laughs> that, that shows how you're a class act. Like Clearly, this guy's feeling it. You know, He's having a good time. I'm not going to interrupt it because, like, Two verses into this, I would have been, dude, we're not doing this right now. Do you know why I did it? Because you wanted to... I wanted to sell the amplifier. Yeah. (laughs) You told him that was the best. You should get your own YouTube channel. So you should make a YouTube... Maybe we could have Kevin loves that song, truth be told. Beautiful. He does love it. If you're watching and you're the guy I sold that amp to, send me a message. We'll have you perform James Blunt's You're Beautiful on Theology Live. We're not going to do that. Okay, so undesigned coincidences. And this is about... The, the simplest way to describe it and then the, the best way to actually understand it is to look at examples, but it's, a, it's about agreement that you find, coincidental agreement on small details between authors that it's hard to imagine being there on purpose. Mm-hmm. Meaning, even if it's the authors colluding to look like they're all telling the same story from the same time period and stuff, these are the kind of like random coincidences that can only really be explained or best, I should say, not uh, can yes. only, but they are best explained yep. by... Um, just the fact that, hey, these are, this, these are all guys who are there telling true stories. So, undesigned coincidences. Let's, let's give an example of what this would look like in real life, and then we'll start showing some Bible examples. Okay. This is an oversimplified, way too obvious example. But let's say me, Kevin, and Isaac are all in different places, 
coming to, going to and coming from, and from different angles, we all witness a car accident. And the police call us and they want our stories, but they're trying to hear them all independently to make sure that we were actually there, so trying to verify you're there. So they're looking for big details of agreement. But when I'm telling the story, I happen to mention, yeah, the sound was so loud it scared me and I dropped the bag of tacos I had. Okay. Just a side detail, not the main point. And then yes. I tell the rest of the story. Later on, they bring Isaac in and he just to start his story goes, well, I was on my way to meet with Sam to eat some tacos and then I saw this car accident. And then he tells the rest of the, and a good, you know, the, if the questioner is paying attention, he goes, okay, well, that's kind of random that they both mentioned tacos. Then they bring Kevin in. Kevin says, I, I made was, the tacos. I, oh, that's a way. No, I was going to say, Kevin says, I was walking to lunch by myself because Sam and Isaac are always going to get tacos and leaving me out. Yes. Which is true in real life and in the yeah, story. Yeah. That's, no, that's not true. That's not true. We always take Kevin. In fact, Kevin's the one who pays and gets Venmoed by us, so he That's has true. to come. He's the only one who brings a wallet. I thought, I thought you were going to say, and then Isaac said, and then I saw it, the tragedy. The tacos. The tacos were falling. I mean, something else loud happened to the right. I don't know what it was, yeah. but the tacos splattered on Isaac's the like, I couldn't see any details of the car accident because I happened to see some tacos fall I on the ground. I ran and I, with my hand, I reached out. So it's a dumb example because it's actually way too, it, it's too dominant of a detail actually to really fit this, but mm -hmm. you get the idea. It's sort of, we're telling this bigger story, but this incidental detail happens to match up on all of them. So let me give you some examples from scripture that'll kind of fill in what I'm talking about. There are a lot of these. Some of them are thinner than others. And um, the thing about them is there's almost always another explanation that you could come up with, but the explanatory power, the argument of yes. power is the number of them. The and cumulative case of all of them put together. And most of them, it's sort of like, the Occam's razor, like the simpler explanation, is mm -hmm. just that these dudes are telling true stories. And we're not talking about proof. We're talking about evidence right. for reliability. So one example, this is a super simple one. We don't even have to actually look at text. But there are stories about the characters Mary and Martha, who are sisters of each other and sisters of Lazarus, who Jesus raises from the dead. We get stories about Mary and Martha in John and in Luke, but they're completely different stories. Mm -hmm. One's about the raising of Lazarus. That's the one that happens in John's gospel. And the other one's about... Um, a dinner party where Jesus is teaching at their house. Two different stories that happen at different times. But what's interesting is if you pay attention to the stories, in both of them, Martha and Mary have the same personalities. They're portrayed the same way. And they're in details that are complete for completely different reasons in the two different stories. But if you watch and uh, if you have time, go read John 11 and Luke 10 and you'll see that Martha is portrayed famously as this kind of like busy working hard, mm -hmm. go-getter. She's kind of a step ahead. When Jesus is, you know, she's the one running around to serve everybody at the party. And in John's story, she's the one who sends the messenger to get Jesus. She's the one who, when she hears he's coming, she leaves and runs out and talks to him. She's kind of the proactive go-getter. Mary is more of the passive, I'm sitting and waiting and listening for Jesus type character. And you see that also in both stories. So simple example. And again, you might immediately go like, well, look, I got, you know, I can think of other reasons why that would be the case. The point is, simplest explanation is, these are real people, and Luke was familiar with them, and John was familiar with them, and in their true retellings of these two stories, they appear to have the same characteristics. Yeah, would it be fair to say, let's say, um, we talked to five different people who've had different interactions with you. Uh -oh. um, no, no, I'm not saying anything <laughs> out. I'm not saying anything out. Uh, and... At different events, different birthday parties, different whatever, but all of them keep bringing up like not only maybe that you're tall, but like a unique 
unneeded feature. Like I'm not trying. I'm like just say like, yeah, man, the dude talk like he just talks a lot. This is honest. And then they, it comes up each time, so that some then someone who knows Sam goes, oh yeah, that's that's that sounds that's like Sam. Sam. That sounds true. Right. And none of these people were like intentionally like, well, we have to right. display. And the intended coincidence would be, hey, this event happened at the house of Mary and Martha. Yes. Um, that's like the kind of thing where if you're getting your story straight, you make sure you know where it happened, who was there and stuff. But the fact that they happen to look like the same kind of personalities in both stories seems like an accidental coincidence. Um, there's a couple of other really, really simple ones, but the one that because we're running out of time, I want to, oh, here, there's another really good one that is actually pretty quick. So James and John, does anybody in the chat know what James and John's nickname is? I'm going to give you five or 10 seconds because the chat's a little bit behind the live stream, but throw in a comment if you know the name, the nickname given in Mark's gospel to James and John Zebedee. This is where you have, Kevin, the little Jeopardy theme song. Not the, not the opener theme song, but when they're thinking at the end. Boom, 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 yeah. boom. Are we going to get pulled for copyrights if I hum that song? Because you know it's in the perfectly correct key. All right, we'll see if the, if the things come in correct. We haven't seen any yet. But James and John in Mark's gospel are called the sons of thunder. Mm-hmm. Now, what's really interesting about that is in Mark 3, when Jesus nickname, when Jesus calls them that, or they're referred to as that, there's, oh, yeah, look at Dina Bless coming in with sons of thunder. And you know she said it before I said it because of the way the delay works with the yes. chat. So they're called sons of thunder, but Mark does not say why they're called sons of thunder. Oh, son of thunder. I like that too. Now that, if I, I do declare, the picture looks familiar on that son of thunder fella. Sherry Russell also knows Sons of Thunder. Who is it? I can't. It looks to me like Robert John, Robert John Campos, I would have to guess. Too old, so, this. Sons of Thunder in Mark 3. What's interesting, though, like I said, is Mark does not give a reason why they're called that. He just happens to mention that they're called the Sons of Thunder. In Luke 9, there's this story about James and John being hot-headed and they're mad at a Samaritan village, and they literally ask Jesus, can we call down fire from heaven, mm-hmm. by which they mean lightning, almost certainly. And Jesus corrects them and says no, but they are not called the sons of thunder in that story. So you, you hopefully you're starting to see how this works. So Jesus nicknames them sons of thunder, almost certainly because one time they got carried away and asked, not just one time, they have this. They're kind hot-headed. Of, they're yeah. hot-headed. They have other examples of being hot-headed, but they specifically ask, can we call down lightning from heaven to destroy mm-hmm. the city? But Mark just happens to mention in passing that they have that yeah. nickname and doesn't tell that story. So that's an, another example of, oh, this, it, this story explains this one, but not in a way where you would ever imagine that ancient writers are getting together and planting these tiny, tiny details. Now, here's my favorite one. And this is a... a now, Ryan wants to know, is Jesus joking there to kind of make fun of them? I don't know. I mean, usually nicknames aren't mean-spirited. So my guess is that it is kind of like a chill-out Sons of Thunder kind of thing. Could um, be, yeah. Who knows? You remember the movie Days of Thunder? I do. It also was brought to life in a ride at Paramount's Great America. That's true. <laughs> I thought you were going to have more to say about that. Well, I was going to, but then after the thunder, Kevin starts laughing. Because <laughs> he probably had some good, you had some good times, man. You oh, know, I so had that with that theme song playing back, get your blood flowing. Like, yeah, I'm yeah. so young that they, Days of Thunder was gone by the time I went to Great America. See, then they did an upgrade there. This is uh, in San Jose, California. They took you, you know, what Tom Cruise 
on land, and then they took you with Tom Cruise in the air. Top with Gun. Top Gun, which also had another good theme song. Top Gun, by the way, great roller coaster. It was a great roller coaster. They're making another. They're they're doing a part two to to. to uh, Top yeah. Gun will probably won't be. And good. let's be honest, they really shouldn't do that. So okay, let's look at this, Kevin. You can pull up my Bible here. This is um, from the story of the feeding of the five thousand. Little trivia for you guys: the feeding of the five thousand is the only miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels, it's the Synoptics and John. Now there are tons and tons of unintended coincidences in this story, be specifically because it's told by four Gospels. But this is my favorite one, and hopefully you guys can follow me on this. They're at they're, you know they're having. They're teaching time with this giant crowd of 5,000 men, tons of people. And so famously, you'll, if you're familiar with the story, you'll remember this. Starting at verse 5, this is John's account. It says, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So kind of a random detail there. Jesus, it says, doesn't, all the other gospels just say he said to them, yes. to the disciples in general. John specifically records that he said this to Philip. It's kind of random because um, Philip's a minor character. Yeah. Like there's not really a whole lot of other, it's, he's not like a Peter or a James or John where you get a bunch of stories about Poor him. Philip, man. Philip just, if you watch The Chosen, Philip's a great character in The Chosen, the TV okay. show. But in the Gospels, you don't get a lot about him. And for some reason, John specifies that it's Philip. Now, the reason why is almost certainly found by looking at two other parts of the Bible. So if you go all the way back to the very beginning of John's gospel, to John 1, 44, you learn about Philip. It says, now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now, keep following the rabbit trail. It's probably the best one to me. It's so cool. Jump into Luke's gospel. So now we're doing a different author written in a completely different time. And Luke writes this about that same story about the feeding of the 5,000. On their return, the apostles told him all that they had done he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. When the crowds learned it, they followed him, and he welcomed them and spoke to them of the kingdom of God, and da-da-da-da-da, and this leads into the story of the feeding of the 5,000. So, did you follow that? Here's what happens. Jesus is teaching, and we learn from Luke's gospel, he's teaching in Bethsaida, this Galilean village. Mm -hmm. We learn from John's gospel at the very beginning, that that's the town Philip's from. But John never says that that's where the feeding of the 5,000 takes place. It just says that when it's time to look, to look for food, he says, hey, Philip, get him something to eat. Why? Because he's talking to the guy who's from there, who knows where you might be able to get food, even though he's testing, as John's gospel says. So in order to explain why Jesus asks Philip to get them food, you have to know not just what's in John, but also what's in Luke. And so the idea there, again, is not that they're doing this grand thing. It's the exact opposite. It's that they're just telling the true story of what happened. John knows that Jesus asked Philip, so he just includes that detail. And you learn why when you read Luke, which includes the detail that Philip's from Bethsaida. But in the feeding of the 5,000, doesn't say that it's there. Doesn't say that Jesus asked Philip. So, again, I know that's complicated, but hopefully you guys are kind of following the reasoning there. there the gospel authors are doing their best to be accurate to the event. Right. And in one account, there's this little piece of detail. It's like, okay, so he asked Philip. It's not the author's intention to be like, ooh, this is a secret clue to exactly. something. It's just, this is Philip. And then you learn from something else that, oh, there was actually a historical reason why he would ask Philip. And so, again, it's showing that there's a reliability that these authors are including. They're including the information 
um, that they either saw firsthand or got from, from yeah. some other person. And in that example, it's a tiny detail. It's like it's it indicates that it's historically true that the disciple Philip was from Bethsaida. Now, that does not matter at all theologically. No. It just it demonstrates the historical reliability of these books. And Lydia McGrew, who did some work on this a long, long time ago, talks about how her, her by her account, she says the synoptics explain John nine times. John explains the synoptics six times, meaning these sorts of overlaps. And the synoptics, synoptics explain each other four times. There's a bunch of these. Mm-hmm. And again, each one of them, maybe you could come up with some good reasons why that might have happened. But again, the kind of Occam's razor simplest explanation is not these kind of really complex, carefully planned, bizarre choices of overlap, but just the fact that these guys are just telling the true story to the best the of their ability. The tacos dropped. The taco, really did drop. I really did have tacos and I really did drop them. And that's a true story. So, okay. We had some more stuff, but man, as, as usual, Time we're run out. So a little quick trivia. This is a little snob thing. Oh, I like it. For the, for the chat. Uh, Sam mentioned that there's uh, one miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. Um, put in the chat the other miracle that's mentioned in all four Gospels because oh, he's mistaken. That's that's technically and true. And this is technically true snob. Like, a, Meh, see, you forgot about one. Yeah, see, let's let's give him a few minutes to and respond. Why, I, those of you still listening, we need three more likes. Three more likes three to three get Kevin likes. re Two more likes to get Kevin rehired. He's rehired at 24? Is that I didn't, I didn't think, think that was, that was an option. No, that wasn't a part of the deal. We're okay. just making stuff up. Yeah, I'm just making stuff up now. You're 100% right. That's not a part of the deal. Hold on. I'm trying to look for evidence of what Isaac's talking about. Isaac, you want to tell him? Well, you're looking for evidence. You might be thinking yeah. of something else. Yeah, you're I might be doubly else. wrong. No, no, no. no. Go, go ahead. Oh, say what I was going to say that the cheap... Tr- it's The most important miracle out of all of them. The resurrection. The resurrection the of Jesus. I thought you, I thought there was. I was going to go to the alternate ending of Mark and talk oh. about the resurrection, but it's going to get too nerdy if we do that. Or, I, or you could have been like real cheesy, the miracle of love, mm. the love that occurs, <laughs> even for poor Philip, who's only mentioned. Oh, twenty three. We'll have to end it on that, folks. Twenty. Oh yeah, you're at twenty three. Hey, thank you guys so much for being here. We'll continue the same topic next week. Look forward to seeing you there. Oh, one more like while one we more play like, the hit music that little out. bird. Hit the little bird, Kevin. Hit the little bird, little titty. Oh, it's in the right key.